this morning, I'm going to ask you to use your sanctified imagination with me. I, I want you to pretend, I want you to imagine for a moment that you um, are living on the island of Papua New Guinea. Okay, you are out in the backwoods. You are in uh, the deep part of a jungle. And you're, you're so deep that your people speak a dialect. They, they speak language that, you know, all of you understand. But here's the deal. You don't have a written language yet. So this uh, person comes into your tribe. And let's just say the person is from America. They work with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. And uh, you, you find that this guy is very strange because he doesn't look like you. He doesn't dress like you. You could tell he's from a different place. He speaks a different language. But he just stays with you and he gets to know you. He builds a hut. He lives there just like you live. And then he, he shows you some leaves. And you're looking at him and, and he says, leaves. And then he asks you and you're like, uh, and you say, uh, you know, whatever it is that you say. And then, and then he says, okay, one leaf. And then like many leaves and like, and then like over time, what's happening is he's starting to learn your language. You're starting to learn his language. He's living there for three years. In year four, something amazing happens is he teaches you to write. He teaches you to read. He's taking your language and he's giving you a written language. Okay, now just bear with me because there's a purpose in all of this. All right, it's going to be right here where we are in our, our study this morning in Titus. He tells you about this man named Jesus. He, he tells you uh, he's the son of God and he, he's come to heal and to give you a different life and to open up your spirit. And all, all of a sudden you're listening to these things and this is the first time you've heard it. And your mind is kind of open and, and you're, you're praying and then you pray to receive this Jesus, this Christ into your life. And as you pray to receive Christ, your heart changes. The people that you were at war against um, in another tribe you no longer feel bitterness or anger towards them. You have a heart for them. And, and you, you have this relationship with this guy. He's only been there for you know, four years, but you already feel closer to this guy than maybe even some of your family members. And then he tells you, I'm leaving and I'm going back to my country, which is called America. And I am part of a, a group of people called a church. And what I want you to do is he now has written, he's taken that last year that he's there and what he's done is he's taken parts of the Bible and translated it into this new language that he's taught you. And he tells you to be a follower of Christ, go ahead and read this book and then, and then follow what it tells you to do and the Holy Spirit will teach you. Okay, now keep that imagination going for a moment with me. Because now imagine that this is years down the road and you have an opportunity to come to America. Someone comes and they say, we are hiring people and we're doing a cultural study and we want people from different parts of the world to come into our area and, and uh, to, to share about their culture. Okay, so you're excited because you've never been to America. In fact, you've never been to a, on, on an airplane uh, you live so far in the deep parts of the jungle that you, you don't go into the city. And even going into the big city is a big deal for you. Now, here's the reason why I wanted you to imagine that. If all you had was this book, all you had was the book of Acts and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and some of the epistles, 
and you met this guy from America who told you about Jesus, and you were just so excited, and you, you opened up your heart to God, and then you took an airplane, and you were going to come to this land called America, and the thing that you were excited about is not the Grand Canyon and Yosemite or Washington, D.C. or New York. You cannot wait to get to this thing called the church because you have heard that people that believe and follow Jesus, just like these people in the Bible, are there and they get to gather together. And you come to America and you come to the church. And I want to ask you this question. What would your expectation be like of what these people should be like? What just from reading, you, you've never experienced, you can't compare it to like, this is different than the church I used to go to or I was raised in this. All, all you know, you've never been a part of a group of people except the other few believers in Papua New Guinea that have come to Christ that you meet together and you study this, this book and you, you've started to live together and maybe you've, you've shared your crops and you've said, hey, um, you know, my, my mango tree is growing a lot this year. I can't eat all. And you start giving these mangoes to other people and, and, uh, and then someone else, you know, they have a need, this husband who gets his arm chopped off, you know, in this accident and now he needs help and you're helping him and, and everyone's working together. You're, you're, you're kind of pitching in. Uh, you have this new uh, desire not to have at war with your other tribes, but to reach out to them. And you're so excited because you get to come to a place where people actually believe the same things and come from the same background of, of what Jesus said. If you are my follower, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. That means I'm going to meet people. You're on this plane, and you've never been on a plane, but you're just blown away. I'm going to meet people that are also willing to die for the things of God. I'm going to be with people that love each other so much that the, the divide of their ethnicity and their background, and whether they're rich or poor or whatever they've come from, that the divide of those things which makes them so different, even languages, that barrier is broken because the thing they have in common is Christ, which is so much more than anything that we have in common, even with my other tribesmen. And and maybe you're thinking, "I, I can't wait to be around these people because the joy is going to be just overflowing. I mean, I have this joy in my life. I can't imagine being in a room with other people that know the same God that I know, and they're probably gonna have that same joy that I have. And I also can't wait because even though I've been a missionary in a sense, I've been on mission as a disciple in Papua New Guinea and and telling my friends and family about Jesus, it will be so exciting to be with other people that that is also their whole mind and heart and desire is to reach as many people for Christ. I just want to ask you a question. What would it be like for you to come into the church in America? That's your mindset. All you have to compare the church to is not the church down the street or not the church that you've seen on the internet that is exploding or the multi-site church. You, you don't have any of that. You only, you only have this. It's all you have. You have the book of Acts and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have some of these letters that Paul wrote to the different churches. And what would you think and what would your expectation be? And just imagine like there's something in the bulletin and it says there's a, a prayer meeting. You are just like, just amped. You just can't wait. Because you look around and you're going like, 
I can't wait because all of these people, we're all going to be together praying. And you show up and you're excited and it's seven o'clock and the prayer meeting's supposed to start at, at, at seven and like it's you and two other people. And you ask the people that are there, the, is this the correct place? We have a prayer meeting tonight. And they say, yeah, it's the correct place. And you, and you say, well, do I have the correct time? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, you have the correct time. This is it. Usually it's just us two. Welcome, now there's three of us. And then, and then just imagine that you are sitting in this room and you start to look around the room and, and you come up to someone and you say, hey, how long have you been gathering together? And you say, well, I've been gathering here for about uh, a year. Wow, a year. Can you introduce me to some people? And, and the person says, well, I, I don't really know anyone. What, what do you mean you don't know anyone? You... You're followers of Christ, right? And you're, you're trying to reach people together, as many people as you can, right? Yeah. But you don't know anyone? No, I, I don't. I just, I just come and I sit. You're going, you just come and you sit. Because I don't, I don't see, you know, you're looking through the Bible and you're going, this is really because, like, what, what's your mission? Like, what, what, are you, what is it that you do to draw people to Christ? I haven't really shared with anyone this year. You, it's been a year? Oh, there must be very, very intense persecution here in America. If you tell people about Christ, your life is at risk. Yes? Um, no. Well, why don't you tell them? They might make fun of me. They might make fun of you? Yeah, if, if I tell them about Christ, they might laugh at me. And, and that's, what, that's what causes you to be scared about telling people about Jesus. And you, So I, I just share that with you because this conviction as i'm reading through titus and i'm thinking about these things i i am so convicted at times because my life doesn't look like this at times my life does when i go to the gym i i put my headphones on i don't want to talk to anyone and i'm mad if it, all the things i want to be doing are, are are filled with people because people are in my way to do what i want to do and if you ever get stuck in a crowd and there's traffic and there's people around you, those people are, are slowing you down from doing the things that you want to do. And, and the work people, the people that you work with, and they sit in the cubicle every day right next to you. And every day, you know, you, they, they share with you their complaints about the boss and they share with you their complaints about the job. And, and, and you just kind of feel like there's more to life and you know what happens is sometimes we get so caught up in just survival mode and just going through life that we forget that God has called us to do something to reach as many people as possible. Now, I'm sharing that with you because as a Christian, I'm convicted. And as a pastor, I realize God has led us to this place, led me to this place where as a, as a shepherd, a shepherd is to lead a flock and, and an under-shepherd because Jesus is really the one that leads the flock. So in leading, what happens is that God brings us from one place to another place. And, and we're to be in motion and growing together. All of the things of the Bible of one another, love one another, give preference to one another, serve one another. Do you know what that, me- do you know what that needs? What do you need in order to obey those commandments? 
You need another, right? To love another, to be patient with one another. So the reason why I'm sharing that with you is that that's the backdrop of the book of Titus in this portion of scripture that we are going to look at. Now, annually, one of the things that we do is kind of have a church family meeting where we kind of share just some things that are going on in the church, some direction, some ways that God is working. And I'm I'm blown away because when I had prayed about teaching through the book of Titus, you know, between now and then uh, Easter and then uh, coming later on into the book of Romans, I didn't plan to be in this chapter on this day. But this is where we are in this chapter on this day. And guess what? It is the perfect text for us as a family of God, as people that are gathering together. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Titus chapter one. And as you turn to the book of Titus chapter one, um, if you don't have a Bible, you could follow along in the, there's a Bible in the back of the seats there. Um, Also wanted to point out to you that as we lead up to Easter, there's going to be some things that are changing over here Um, in that prayer area. If, you know, during times of worship or later on, there's some different cards and you could come and look and just kind of meditate. Um, The the stuff that's there, it's kind of like, it just reminds us, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, we kind of lead towards that. And as we lead towards Easter, some things are going to be changing over there. Um, remember that as, as we go into this time of the resurrection, for us as believers, this is a day that changed history. And it, it changed history because when we read it in the book of Titus, there is already a church established there. And this church is established because people believed in this resurrection. And I want you to pick up with me in chapter one and um, just, just read with me in verse, in verse five. It says, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If you remember, Paul the apostle has uh, left Titus in this place called Crete. And, and Paul the Apostle, if you look at the map there on the, on the screen, um, he has left Rome, he was in prison, he was let go, and during this time that he was uh, released, um, he went on a missionary trip, he comes back to Macedonia, but he left Philip, I mean, he left, um, he left Timothy in Ephesus, and he left Titus in Crete. So from Macedonia, Paul is writing these letters. He's reminding Titus that he left him there in Crete in order to... Um, put things in order that are lacking. And that begins with when it comes to a a body of Christ, when it comes to a church, it's important to have called and equipped leaders. Leaders are always needed in every aspect. In our our country, leaders are needed. If it weren't for Winston Churchill, I believe that God brought Winston Churchill to the forefront for such a time as that during World War II. I believe that it was his leadership and his inspiration that saved England. I I think that if Winston Churchill doesn't come into power in England at the time that he comes, everyone in England is speaking German. Um, There is something that happened because there was a leader. And all throughout history and all throughout the church, God uses leaders to start things and to encourage and to inspire And there are leaders that must be chosen, but the challenge is that the place of Crete, there was this saying that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and idle gluttons. Uh, Cretans are people from Crete, they're not honest, uh, they're evil, and they're lazy. 
And because of that, Paul is writing to Titus to say, you are in a, a difficult culture, a difficult place, and you need to, from that place, find leaders that match up to the things of God. And what God is calling us to, God is calling us to go beyond what the status quo is and just a reflection of our culture. Um, you may have heard before that a thermometer simply reflects the temperature of a room, but a thermostat can actually change the temperature of a room. God has not called us to be thermometers simply reflecting the temperature of a room, but to be thermostats that change that. And so if people are indifferent and people don't care about others, God has called us to be those that care about others. If people don't believe in truth, God has called us to be those who believe in truth. And so when we look at these leaders, the leaders start to represent a church's character. If you remember last week, just some things that we touched on, um, in verse seven, it says in chapter one, a bishop must be blameless. Uh, the word for bishop or elder or, or pastor in many of these places are interchangeable. The role is to be a spiritual leader. And Paul leaves Timothy there, uh, Titus there, and he says, Titus, I want you to appoint men to do these things and to be these leaders. And this is what leaders should be like. Now, this is, this is what Christians should be like. But every leader who doesn't do these things is really disqualified from that, um, that leadership role as an elder. Remember that uh, that person is to be a steward, not self-willed. Uh, remember that when it's not self-willed, it doesn't mean not strong-willed. Peter was very strong-willed. And by the way, if you are a parent and you have a strong-willed child, praise God that you have a strong-willed child. Because if you can turn, if that person can turn that strong will towards the things of God, that person is not going to be swayed and moved by different opinions in the things of this world. Strong will is very valuable. And if you are a person with a strong will, focus that will by surrendering it to Jesus. I'll tell you, you could be absolutely strong-willed, but if you're strong-willed in not surrendering towards Jesus, then you're gonna be like Paul before he came to Christ. You're gonna be kicking against the goads. Your life is going to be painful. It's going to be difficult because in that strong will, you're not channeling it and focusing it in surrender to the Lord. These leaders were not to be quick-tempered. They were to be patient men, but not complacent. Notice that there's a difference between being patient and being complacent. Um, imagine that you're out of work. And um, you need a job. And someone says, okay, well, here's these applications. You know, I'm throwing these applications. Here, I, I saw this place on, on this website and this friend gave me this idea. And, and so, and you say, well, I'm just, uh, I'm just being very patient. How many jobs have you applied for? Um, I haven't really applied yet. I'm just waiting on the Lord. You know, I'm just being very, very patient, waiting for God to kind of bring that to me. And sometimes in our patience, um, it's important that we realize not quick-tempered, it, it, it's someone that can be, you can be passionate. I hope and pray that we have passionate people in the body of Christ. The problem is that sometimes Christians can be so passionate about other things and not so passionate about the things of God. I, I mean, it, it's amazing. We could find people that are passionate for anything. Um, conventions you know there's going to be a bug convention different species of bugs and I, I know i know a guy you know he is passionate about bugs and if you're passionate about bugs that's awesome you know that is very cool you know they're very interesting 
But I, I know people that can be passionate about bugs, but when it comes to like outreach or reading the Bible or prayer, it's like, <sighs> what am I passionate about? I can be passionate about a sports team, but am I passionate about God? It, it goes on some other qualities and characteristics, not given to wine. Uh, in other words, free of intoxication and addiction. It's someone that look for people, Titus, um, that don't need a buzz to loosen up or to take the edge off in order to talk to people. Find people that are filled with the spirit, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that the spirit enables us to do things that we are not able to do naturally. Have you ever uh, heard of the, the phrase, an angry drunk? Like someone that's an angry drunk will start a fight with someone, even though they know they're going to get beat up. And that, that liquid courage kind of gives them that emphasis to go do something. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what he does? He gives us boldness to do things we would not normally do. And, and he gives us that ability to go beyond our own personality type. I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. But God calls me to be an extrovert at times by ministry. And so sometimes when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he doesn't change our personality, but he does take our personality and use it. And at times, I, I need to know that I have this gifted zone, but sometimes there are things that God has us do that are very uncomfortable. It's one of the reasons why I wanted you to kind of move in your seats a little bit. It's just that whole sense of saying, God, I don't want to cast and get hardened into a form very quickly. I want to be mobile. Um, you ever hear like the, the training in the Marines, you're going to be mobile, you're going to be agile, you're going to be hostile. You know, God wants us to be people that are mobile, hostile, and loving. You know, he wants us to be, uh, to have a difference. And, and we can't just get so set in our ways that we can't say, God, what do you want to do new? What do you want to do new this year? Maybe at the beginning of 2015, he said, God, what do you want to do new in me this year? And then now it's March. And you're saying, okay, I can't wait to 2016 because it's going to be different. You know, next year, it's going to be different. Uh, not violent, not one to pick a fight, uh, not a lover of controversy and, and strife. Uh, you don't have to know how to do an arm bar or a roundhouse kick to be an elder, um, you know, but not violent, it doesn't mean being wimpy. To be not violent, it doesn't mean that you just cave in and give in to every wind of doctrine and someone that disagrees with you and you just kind of buckle in your convictions. No, it just means that you're not one to want to, to pick a fight. You're not a lover of that strife. Not greedy for money. And this is for all of us. Um, not motivated. What motivates you? Is it money that motivates you? It, I mean, obviously... We work hard to receive a paycheck and a, a worker is worthy of his wage. That's, that's fine. And you get bonuses and certain things. But one time I remember having a boss that just got in my face. She wanted me to do this advertisement. And the advertisement was kind of a, a shady advertisement for a quote unquote massage, um, you know, massage parlor. But I knew after talking to the people that it wasn't just massage and there were some other things. So I kind of buried that. I'm not going to work that account. I'm going to lose some money and our company is going to lose some money because this is a new advertiser, but I don't want them to advertise. And she gets in my face and she starts yelling at me. She pounds the desk and she goes, don't you want to make money? Don't you want to make money? What are you doing? And I told her this goes against my conviction. So you could give it to someone else. Someone else can work it. And that person can have that bonus. And I looked at her and I told her something. I said, you could yell at me and you could throw more money at me. And I want you to know something. 
it will not motivate me more to work harder because I am already working as hard as I can because as a Christian, that's my ethic. And it kind of blew her away because most people that she either threatened to lose the job or bribed by, hey, you're gonna get more money, that would, like, that would cause them to jump. And you know what? These are people, leaders in the church, not motivated by money. In other words, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Here's a blessing. I, as a, a pastor, and you read through scripture, and, and it's a, a good thing that a, a laborer is worthy of his wages, that there are times that a, um, a minister or someone in a, another ministry, even outside of the church, can be supported by that ministry, and that, that's a good thing. But I would pay to do what I get paid for. I would pay to do what I get paid for. Because before I was getting paid for this, this is what I was doing. And you see, the money should never be the motivator in anything that we do as far as our chief motivator. Now, even in a job, it's submitting that job to the Lord. God, what do you want me to do? Because I've seen people take jobs that pay a ton of money, but that job is taking them away from their family. And that job is taking them away from anything that, that they could do in ministry to minister to others. And they, aren't, they were only seeing the financial side of it. Now, if God calls you to do that, then go ahead and do that. But say, Lord, as I do that, help me to give and be generous and be a missionary where I am. There are rich, godly people and there are poor, godly people, just like there are rich, ungodly people and poor, ungodly people, but not greedy for money. So verse nine, I'm just hitting on a few of these. Um, Holding fast to the word, uh, the faithful word, as a church at Regeneration, one of the things that we do is we want to hold fast to the faithful word. It says in verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So holding fast to the faithful word as we have been taught, sound doctrine is absolutely important because we live out our beliefs. We live out our beliefs. Doctrine, maybe I've heard people say, well, theology, doctrine, you know, that's kind of for, you know, those that are in Bible college and that's for people that are really, you know, students of the word. But sound doctrine, sound belief, that's for all of us. And so because of that, we're to hold fast to that faithful word. And at times that means exhorting and convicting those who contradict. Now that was somewhat a review of last week, but then, If you look at this, what happens here in verse 10, he tells them, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, many insubordinate, many idle talkers, deceivers, Now, in our world, especially where we live, there are going to be many different beliefs and many different opinions. That is true in our culture in America. That is true in our culture in California. That is definitely true in Northern California. That is definitely true in Santa Cruz County. We have different beliefs. And you know what? God has created different people and diversity in and of itself, you know, is is great. Different cultures, people are different. But when a culture or an individual doesn't know the truth, doesn't know the reality of Jesus, we should be actually grieved 
and want them to know the truth. We should actually be grieved and want them to know the truth. Tolerance, absolutely. We should be tolerant. In the definition of tolerance that has been the dictionary definition for decades up until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the word tolerance has now come in our culture to mean, we're using the same word but different dictionary. The word tolerance has now come to mean this, every belief is equal and they are all as valid as one another. Now, we should be tolerant of people that have different beliefs. God has called us in Christian love to love everybody. And in that tolerance, we realize that there's gonna be people that don't believe like we believe. It doesn't make us better than them. But I'll tell you what, there's this new tolerance that is creeping in even to the body of Christ and even to God's people that is saying this. If someone is already in a way of believing then don't try to convince them or t- share with them or tell them truth because that's their way of thinking. And you know what? In schools and in, in different places, higher education, that's kind of the new form of tolerance. But Paul wants Titus to confront these things, especially where? Where in the church. Now out there, there's gonna be many different beliefs, but Paul is writing to Titus as the pastor of this church in Crete and he tells him, Titus, There are many insubordinate people, idol talkers, deceivers, um, whose mouths must be stopped. That's a very polite way of saying, Titus, shut them up. Like, don't let them go around spreading false doctrine and deceiving people. Don't say, well, you know, that's just a different belief. Like, you have a belief that there really isn't um, uh, an afterlife. There really isn't a hell. Uh, Jesus really isn't God. Um, He's not the only way. There's other ways. You know what? If people are doing that, he tells Titus, it's your responsibility as a shepherd to say something about that and not allow them to spread those false doctrines. I have a friend that pastors a church here um, in Santa Cruz County that his church went through a split because what he didn't realize was that at the home fellowships, one of the elders just started teaching these doctrines that were just off the wall, just some weird kind of theological stuff And before he knew it, many people in the church kind of felt that way. And when he finally found out, it it split the church. So what Paul is telling Titus is to beware of these things. But this is not just the responsibility of, of pastors. This is also the responsibility for those that know the word of God. In verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, is it true that one of their own said this or is it true what he said? It's probably a little bit, of, it's probably both. Uh, every place is hard, by the way. Paul was leaving Titus in a difficult place, but I wanna let you know, as you already know, every place is hard. Now, it's different kinds of hardness. Definitely, I, I don't feel like the hardness and the difficulty of where I live and where I minister is as difficult as the places that are being persecuted that right now, you know, ISIS is coming in or whatever group is coming in and they're having to leave their homes and be on the run. I'm not saying that the hardness that we face is as hard as that, but let me tell you a different kind of hardness. A different kind of hardness is this. There are many good people that give towards charity, that are serving on PTA, that are involved in Rotary, that have a nice house and everything is nice and comfortable for them and they do not see any need for Jesus in their lives. 
that's hard. Because when you reach out to someone that is desperate and someone that has been addicted to drugs and they know they need help outside of themselves, sometimes that person's in a better spot to be able to receive. When someone's persecuted and they know that my belief can lead to my death, sometimes there is the realization that I want to know what's going to happen after this life. And so as I surrender my life to Christ, not only does he give me peace now, but in the afterlife, this life isn't the end in and of itself. But when you work with people that are making a ton of money and everything is comfortable and life is pretty good, sometimes those are very difficult people to reach. And so it is important that we realize our testimonies are all different. They may not be, you know, God saved me from the gutter and the dregs of society. They may be that God rescued you from this selfish lifestyle that just says it's all about me. And that is still as great of a testimony because both people are, are lost. Um, so in verse 14, not giving heed to fab- Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now, these specific sects or groups, uh, many of them were, were kind of um, taking Judaism and then Christianity and kind of like putting things together and sometimes even taking some beliefs and mixing them. There's a mixture. My friend Craig Linquist, uh, when he talked about the difficulty of ministering in Africa, is he said, when people come to Christ in Africa, in Uganda, what happens is they come to Christ but then there's these layers of other animistic religions that the, the God of you know, this area, the God of the forest, the God of this, and they mix them. And there's this mixture that starts to happen. And Paul is telling Titus, you, you gotta watch out for those. And you know what we have to watch out for as Christians is mixing our understanding of the gospel with other things that, are not, um, that, that aren't consistent with the gospel. Um, maybe you've heard this phrase before, God helps those who what? Help themselves. I understand what people mean by that. I understand it's saying like, I just can't be sitting there lazy and God's not gonna zap me and change everything in my life. I have to participate in that. But I will say this, when we can't help ourselves, God still reaches out to us. When we were yet sinners separated from God, God reached out to us. That's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come for people that were doing really well with self-help. Jesus came for people that were helpless. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Hey, I was going a different way. I thought I was going the right way. And then God reached out to me and showed me that I was going the wrong way. In verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. Um, In other words, if we're going to get our purity based on like these fables, these legends, these things that we do, then even doing that is defiled. But when we are um, consecrated, when we are set apart, made holy by God, when he's the one that cleans us up, then it's not about the do's and don'ts that make us um, either clean or unclean. We do those things and we're moral in following God's law because we're justified by Christ. So morality is a part of that, but it's not ever meant to try to earn our way into God's approval. Does that make sense? Now they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So notice the contrast in verse 16. These are those that are disqualified, and we just talked about leaders that are qualified. Now we get into this church's discipleship. 
And this is so important for us this morning. It says in verse one, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. One of the most important aspects of church life is its discipleship, to teach and to be teachable. So by the way, it is important to realize something. It, the, it says proper for sound doctrine or fit or, or um, in accord with sound doctrine. How I believe, that's what we prayed for, and then how I live, those things, have you ever done the vision test? If you guys have done that at an optometrist, and he says, okay, tell me when the two pictures, you know, if it's a barn, you know, at least for me, it's this red barn, like off in the distance that I can see there's green and there's a blue sky. And he says, tell me when the two line up. All right, right now. Well, that's, that's what it's like when we're opening the word of God. When belief and doctrine meets practice in my own life, that's the sweet spot that God is calling us to live in. And so in that sweet spot, I, I used to have this sign um, when I was single. I wrote, I wrote this thing on a piece of paper and I taped it to my ceiling. And so when I woke up, I wanted the first thing that I saw when I woke up to be that. And it was a, a sign that I wrote that said, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. I wanted a reminder every day that when I woke up, if I don't live this out, then I don't believe it because we live out our beliefs. We live out of those things. So as we go into this portion and we kind of get into some family meeting specific stuff, who is responsible for making disciples? Thank you. The responsibility of discipleship rests on the shoulders of disciples. Now, this is a part, it's a small aspect of discipleship. It's sitting in a place where there's um, biblical teaching, you know, going through the word of God, checking these things out, making sure that it's sound doctrine. That is a part of it. But you will see in this chapter that the responsibility of discipleship rests on all of us. In Psalm 145.4, it's uh, the verse that... Um, that generation one, young adults that meet on Monday nights, it's one of the, the theme verses for them. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend your works to another. It's one of the reasons this morning that I asked Josh, and I really appreciate your flexibility to say, hey, you know what? At 12.15 a.m. past midnight after you've already been studying, hey, would you mind if the junior hires and high schoolers sat in today because there's a lot of stuff that's relevant specifically to them. He's like, hey, no problem. No, no problem. That's, we'll do that. So I appreciate that. And if you were, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you were in high school and you're a junior high, welcome and, and sitting in here with us because you are not beneath us or below us. You are us. And we are, we're, we're the body of Christ. Now, as the body of Christ, I want you to look around you and realize something when you look at people that are older in the body of christ we have ways at times to relate to people that we feel comfortable with that are our own age but the very important thing that i believe that paul is telling titus to to make sure this is happening because it probably wasn't happening a lot in crete it was this in your family and in the body of christ you are to help take responsibility for the next generation. And all throughout the, my whole life that I could remember, I have heard and I have experienced generation wars. 
Like which generation is better? There's a book that Tom Brokaw wrote about World War II about my parents' generation called The Greatest Generation. I mean, this was a generation that they grew up as children whose, you know, their parents went through the Great Depression and they signed up for World War II and they didn't have a lot of money. And these were the people that worked for 35 years in the same company and earned a pension and they held down a job and they were consistent and they just, they were just reliable and they showed up on time and they rolled up their sleeves and they built America and they did all of these things, which is great. But I'll tell you what, there's also a lot of brokenness in every generation, isn't there? And if you know, you realize that some, some of those people from that generation have difficult relationships with their own children. And this thing was one of the things that Paul wanted to correct. And he told Titus, in the church, the older people must actively be involved with the younger people. Now, we looked at what an elder is in chapter one. And the word for older here is older. It's not elder. So one is a position within a church ministry and the other is stage of life. And he's addressing men that are 50 years old and above. And he says this in uh, chapter, um, chapter two, beginning in verse one. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Hey, if you are in junior and senior high and your, your dad is in here or your grandparent is in here, I want you to know that that person should be someone that you should look to. And I'm telling you this now because it might not make sense. I'm telling you this now because my kids are, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm telling you that now because of this. The older I get, the wiser my parents got. The older that I got, the wiser my parents got. And, and in this last decade of my life, my parents are the wisest that they have ever been. You know, my dad went to be with the Lord last year, but my mom just keeps getting wiser. You know, she just keeps getting wiser. And, and I think it's that these older men weren't just to be older. I mean, age in and of itself does not qualify someone to say, hey, follow me. Okay, years experience does not in and of itself qualify someone. But let me tell you what these years are. These are men that in their years have been sober-minded, they've been reverent, they've been temperate, they've been sound in faith, in love, in patience. In other words, these older men have lived a life well. As a pastor, when I have the opportunity to do someone's funeral or memorial service, what I realize is that a person has already preached their own sermon because of the life that has been lived. In fact, if a life has been lived well, and I bring comfort to people because God has called me to do that through scripture to point people to Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm doing that. But I'll tell you what, that person has already lived a life that people are, are grieving because that person had an impact. And that person does not have to have a title of pastor or elder. I, I, I was talking, uh, in fact, I was talking to Josh a couple of weeks ago and, and the family that owns a place that, that the youth went to, he said, this family is so great that anyone that started to get a part of that family, they wanted to become, like, what were their last names? The Grunders? Like, people would just say, I want to be a Grunder. Why do you want to be a Grunder? It's because look at their family. And, it, and they weren't in full-time ministry. It was just, when you're around the Grunders, you just got that sense of belonging and discipleship. And, and these, these older men, let, let me explain it this way. They were, they were men to follow. They were meant to look at that example. 
And I love the example of men that are just solid. They're reliable. They're trustworthy. They're honest. They love their wives. They, they love their kids. They, they simply do the things that, that are right in front of them. And then in verse three, older women. So in a, a church's discipleship, we're, we're looking at older men and we're looking at older women. This is a Gen 1 iPad, so you got to be, be patient. There you go. <laughs> older men and older women. Hey, there is a tendency for older men and older women. There are two mistakes that can be made once someone gets to that place of either retirement or close to retirement. Here's one mistake. I have, I've worked my whole life. I've raised kids. I have worked out and held a steady job. And now it is, it's me time. This is, it is me time. It is all about me. And it's whatever I want to do. And I'm not going to work. I'm not going to help. I'm not going to pitch it. I'm not going to do, this is all about, this is me because I am retired. And now I am retired from any work at all, you know, in all, and I'm over-exaggerating, but I'm just saying that's a mistake that people can make. That in that time of retirement, it is no longer being actively seeking ways to reach the next generation and to have an impact on the world. There's another mistake that people that get older in that last, uh, that, that stage in getting towards retirement, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I'm getting into that third quadrant of my life. The other mistake is I don't have anything to offer. I, I, I can't do things the way that I, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I, I, my abilities are not what they used to be. My mental uh, memory is not as strong as it used to be. Um, I, I can't participate or travel. And I just want to encourage you, those that, that Paul is addressing as older men, older women, those that are 50 plus, you, most of you empty nesters at this point in time, to say, God, please use this time in my life. And use this time in my life to make an impact on the next generation. And I am just imploring you that we need you. Because if you look at our country today, there's a generation of adults that don't know their bearings. There's a generation of adults that don't know how to just stick it out through the hard times in a marriage relationship. They just can't make it through, through when, when the finances aren't there or one of them gets sick or the, the stuff that's coming out like 50 shades of gray that's saying, hey, just, it, it's all about you. Do whatever you want. Just cast off all restraint. There's a generation that is living right now that needs to hear from another generation. And if a di discipleship doesn't happen, it could be that the older generation isn't passing those things down, but it could also be that a younger generation is not listening. And this is up to all of us, if we are part of that younger generation, to be listening, to want to receive those things from people that have walked life a little bit longer than us that can say, these are the pitfalls, and this is how you see the faithfulness of Christ, and this is how you last when things are really, really hard, and this is how you make it. And we need to hear that. And so for those of you that are younger, which all of us are younger, by the way, because there's someone that's older than us, right? So hey, praise God. If you feel like you're old, you're younger because there's someone else you know that's older. Talk to older people that have been through a little bit more of life and experience than you have and say, God, what can I glean from that? 
And that is part of the focus of our ministry, that intergenerational ministry to grow into that. We had a, a children's ministry meeting where we were talking about that. How can we get the kids into this place where we're, we're, we're saying multiple generations are ministering one to another? How can we do that in, in Gen 1 to have older people pour into the lives of some younger people and vice versa? And I'm really blessed with, you know, the seniors group legacy. You know, I'm, we're, we're talking, we're praying about how can we get some of the people that are a part of the legacy group to be able to pour into some people. And tonight, um, not tonight, uh, this Tuesday night, you know, there's a group of ladies that that's what they're doing. Like we need to continue to grow in this. And I wanna close with this for younger men and younger women. It says in verse uh, well, verse three, older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. So how should they admonish the young women? To love their husbands and to love their children. To love their husbands and to love their children. Most, many of these marriages were prearranged marriages. So in a prearranged marriage, there may not have been that spark that was there but they were called to love their husbands anyway. And let me explain part of that emphasis for us today is this. This is not saying that a woman's place is only in the home, but it is saying that a woman is not to abandon her place that God has set up. We're praying this morning for Theo and for Rebecca and El Salvador that Rebecca would be able to stay home with their newborn child um, if the Lord would provide for them in that way because that would be the best way for them as being in ministry to be able to minister to the people around them. It says in verse five, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, I want you to understand where it says, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. There's a reason behind this. The discreet, the chaste um, homemakers, this again is not prohibiting women from working outside of the home. Proverbs 31 says this. It says that Proverbs 31 woman, remember, what does she do? She rises up early. And what does she do? She goes and she does commerce and she buys and she sells good. She's a businesswoman. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a businesswoman, but what I am saying is, again, the emphasis is, as Paul is writing to Titus, he's saying there's some things wrong in Crete where some of these families are dysfunctional in their roles and in their parts. And it is so important that, that mothers, that you hear this, and I'm not saying this for the sake of you know, cliche or for the sake of you not getting mad at me. Um, the word of God speaks on its own, but I am saying I believe that the strongest influence in, in our country today is mothers. I just, I think that. I believe that fathers should be and could be right up there as well. So maybe, you know, equal. But I wanna let you know that the role that you have is not any second class, any less. In fact, it is such an elevated, exalted thing. You know, when you read about uh, the Holy Spirit, um, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit comes over um, Mary and Mary conceives, and when you read the psalm that Mary writes and the way that God is using her, understand that that role is absolutely essential and important. So don't, don't lose the focus and the priority of that marriage and raising those kids so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The word obedient may be submissive, 
But remember, it's never saying to do that in contradiction to what God would want in his word explicitly. There is a relationship that I wish you could see and understand if this is new information to you and you're going, wow, that's kind of a crazy thing that enrolls in marriage. Um, Deanna and I, we argue sometimes, not a whole lot, but we, we do argue. And in our marriage, she understands and she believes that her role is in that marriage to help me, to support me, and I help her, I support her. Because remember in Ephesians, it says submit one to another in love. So it's not just husbands, it's wives, it's mutual submission. But in that role, in understanding what she does in our marriage, if both of us had our ideas, and not unbiblical ideas, but we both prayed about it and there ever got to a standstill, she'll say to me, Matt, if this is what you really believe the Lord is leading us to do, then I'm gonna follow you. And I wanna tell you what that does for me as a man. It totally builds me up and it gives me the confidence to lead our family. If she would undercut me in every decision that I make and all of a sudden she's undercutting me and she's saying, no, I don't think that. And then in front of the kids and then arguing with me, you know what? That we would just struggle. We would just struggle like crazy. And in our whole marriage, I don't ever remember pulling the trump card to tell her, oh, you're supposed to submit to me. We've been married for 23 years. And Deanna, I don't think I've ever done that. Have I? Can you remember a time? (laughs) Maybe I just don't remember. But I I cannot remember a time where we're arguing and I just said, you know, I just pulled out that card out of my pocket. I'm like, I have these memory verses here and let me read them to you. Because she knows the word and I know the word and I'm not going to bulldoze her because she's a part of me. You know, husbands and wives, when we become one flesh, it's not like I'm fighting to get, that's, that's, that's me also, you know, and I'm her, we're, we're together, we're one. But we will argue, we will talk about things. And so it is important that, that we do those things together. And that's what older women were to admonish these younger women in. And then the younger men, this thing, it's very simple. Just have some self-control. It says in verse six, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. It's like all, the women got all these things and the young man is like, they just got, you know, be self-controlled. And maybe that's all, I mean, that's what they need. That's all they can handle right now. If you could just be self-controlled, that's like the one thing that would, would help the family and the church so much. So as we close, in all these things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Again, Paul writing to Titus, Titus, be this pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. So Titus, you're to speak these things to these other men and these other people. And you're not, we're not perfect, but he's telling Titus this, but you should be exemplary. A leader in a church is not perfect, but should be exemplary. There should be something to follow. There should be something that, that as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Sound speech that cannot be condemned so that, again, it's the so that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. So as we come to this place of just uh, considering these things, next week, um, Pastor Bill will be teaching and we will come back to Titus the week after that.